Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then their history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs, the best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off, so don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 36 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, so it goes in order. We're really excited to be reaching thousands of Tudor-minded people from all over the world. It's extremely exciting for us, and we've had such a great time researching and imagining this project and sharing it with everybody. And if you're enjoying it, support us by buying some Tudorific swag. Yes, please. Please go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the shop button, and bye, bye, bye. We really, really appreciate your support. In our last episode, we went back to 1527 to watch Thomas Wyatt sail off to Venice. But now we're returning to court to watch our two favorite royals, Elizabeth and Cecilia, fling some nasty insults at each other. (laughs) After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the real history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 36, The Palace of Whitehall, in which January the 1st is celebrated, the Queen evens the score, and the Countess of Lennox writes verse. The great hall was quivering. What opulent winter fete would Her Majesty arrange to trump the challenge Cecilia set at Bedford House with her pointed theatricals and flirtation with Robert Dudley? Constance remembered well the pastry in the play, but the Queen, by all accounts, seemed only to have seen too many glances between Sir Robert Dudley and Princess Cecilia. Her Majesty fumed over rumours of a midnight rendezvous between the two. Recompense would come. Cecilia had happily accepted an invitation to court. She was not one to avoid drama. Anticipation permeated every courtier's soul, and, as in battle, the two sides remained divided. The night would be absorbing, but Constance herself felt no loyalty. She was English, but she found Cecilia endlessly engaging. She weaved to the open door of the great hall, where Nazareth and Mary lingered. Nazareth's loyalty was to God, and Mary's to gossip. Come, Constance, Mary beckoned. Let me lean on you. Our queen has been in such a passion these weeks, forcing us to rise earlier by an hour. How are we to bloom with so little time to shut our eyes? And when we drag ourselves into the hall, what then? We had to dance so quickly, twice as fast. Not twice, time and a half, corrected Nazareth. Oh, pish, the fact of it. You take my meaning, do not, Constance, my horribly well-rested girl. I am sorry for you, Mary. Constance gave her a quick hug. You are not. Secretly, you gloat. I am weary. I am behind in Latin, and Lady Strafford keeps hitting me with her flea fur. It has sharp jewels for eyes, and it scratched me. See here. Mary held up a finger and indicated a small dart scab. I do not think any girl has learned more quickly because she was flogged to death with a mangy bit of fur. 
Tell me the truth, Constance. Have you had to study Latin in the service of the Swedish princess? For one so tired, Mary, you complain with great energy, observed Nazareth. What injustice, Mary said. I should have been sent to her Swedish majesty. She would suit me perfectly. Constance, what time do you rise? I cannot confess it, Mary. I fear you would do yourself harm, Nazareth reminded Constance. When you return to court, you will have hard work before you. Constance saw Mary brightened at the prospect. I think this rivalry will end my tenure soon, Constance said. Oh, la, yes. Her Majesty plays the host, but everyone knows her true opinion of the Vasa. Regard the Earl of Rutland staring on you, Constance. He searches for your breasts. Mine are visible with a glance, Mary teased. Constance thwacked her and met Rutland's gaze with a little smile but his eyes were veiled. A horn sounded in the hall, and runners dressed in winged sandals and Greek-style caps burst in, throwing gold dust into the air. The pounding of drums ushered in the queen, covered in jewels and borne on a litter of thirty men who lowered her to the floor. In a graceful run, Cecilia presented herself and curtsied deeply, and yet the curtsy did not seem humbling. The princess was freer, more physical, less burdened than Elizabeth. The queen cast off her cloak, her own beauty radiant. These royals were ready to dance. Constance slid into line as the music started. She was impatient to meet Rutland. After walking to and fro with several courtiers, her hand met his as they began the half-circle. Rutland! My lord Rutland, mistress, do you not know your better? It was as if a bee stung her. She flinched, but she was on to the next man before she could answer. She looked back, but Rutland was smiling at Bridget Skipworth. He was smarting over the trouble at Westminster, and truly he had put himself out. Constance was contrite. A different hand, one that slyly held her own, sprang her back into the moment. Dearest Mistress Constance, how beautiful you look, such colour in your cheeks. Herbert, the good match, it was just so easy. She would like to talk to him, but another man was on his way, and Rutland was within her sights. She decided to speak as soon as they met. You liar, he accused before she had the chance to say anything at all. Their words jumbled together and he did not look at her as he spun by. Someone belched. Oh, Sir Ralph, how be you? Constance asked. You did not notice me on the first turn. She shook her head at Sir Ralph in sympathy, as Herbert's hand found her own again and she smiled up into his face. Rutland was back to berate her. Lower your eyes. How dare you? You do not play those lazy flirts. No, you lie. You liar. Mistress Thomason St. John never wrote those letters. Constance's breath was an inferno in her chest. How could Rutland understand so little? Had they not pulled pranks together? He of all men in the world should understand her. But Sir Ralph was upon her. Do you think our mistress Philomena is taken up with that blackjack? Master Nash would not like it when he returns from the battlefield. Nash? Was Philomena betrothed? Constance wondered. It made sense. How could she not be? Yet never a word of this man had crossed Philomena's lips. Dare I ask, dear Mistress Constance, for a moment when we are not dancing, a moment of private, Herbert spoke quickly, his mouth almost touching her cheek as he moved to the next lady. Should she give her virginity to him? Charles Paget did not want it. Rutland was back, hissing cruelties into her ear. I only wanted to save you pain. I meant to tell you at a fitting time, she muttered back to his crumpled face. 
You covered for her. You took her side. You knew she carried the child of another. Whose is it? He said out of the corner of his mouth as he reached for Catherine Hastings' hand. Sounds! Constance was agog. She had been so thick. Thomason's lover must have been that pirate, that Hawkins. He was always on the stairs, and only the haze of love would have made that odorous marmoset appealing. It fit. The sudden departure from London, Thomason had run off to the country to bear the captain's babe. Sir Ralph disappeared, but Herbert paused for a moment and smiled at Constance before giving his place to another gentleman. Constance prepared herself for Rutland, who was coming round again. Tell me who she took to her bed, and I will forgive you. In the moment it took Constance to decide not to tell him whom she suspected, she had her next partner. Sir Ralph returned, venting the wrongs of Blackjack, who had no good intention toward Mistress Arundel. Constance never thought to doubt Blackjack's affection, and would have said so if she were not passed on to the intimate whispers of Herbert. The dance was ending, and it was Rutland who partnered her last. You congratulate yourself for using one so far above you. Tell me who was the lover of Mistress St. John. He took her arm, escorting her from the press of people, bowing and curtsying. How dare he condemn her? She had only tried to be kind, to protect him, to keep him from making an ass of himself, and now he was being impossible. He never was her friend. How silly she had been to let him play the amorous tutor. He wronged her, and she felt a righteous bile within her. Ask her yourself, sir. I cannot. She is hidden away and will not admit the devil's name. Lady Mildred has been to see her, and her lips are sealed even as her belly swells, jade, inconstant woman. I swear I do not know, Constance said. And it was true. Captain Hawkins loitering on the stairs of Bedford House was not proof, if Thomason wanted to keep her secret. You forged her words as a cover for her whoring, Rutland accused. Those letters were to ease your heart. I was soft to your feelings for a lady who did not return them. You are not my judge. I will do as I like. He bowed and turned away. Throwing her shoe at him would make a scene, but she wanted to throw it. Hard. She wrote those letters for him, for his benefit. Why did she do it? It was such a poor artifice. Now he was angry. That was impossible. She went to this trouble for him, and now he accused her of being selfish. He only ever wanted to talk to her to get news of Thomason. She was best rid of him. He was an ungrateful friend. She had tried to be kind. Now she was the one who had done a false thing, because he had done nothing. Nothing! He could have found out if he cared to, but he was on his velvet close stool passing judgment. She had had enough of the Earl of Rutland. What ails you, Constance? asked Nazareth. Come, we must take our places. Constance found the court on the move. The play was about to be acted. Nazareth was guiding her. Nazareth was a true friend. Nazareth cared for her, expecting no gain. Dear Nazareth, plumper, softer, a little extra weight in her face, with child but still solicitous of others. The play commenced with trilling mermaids, harnessed to a wobbling sea vessel filling the stage. From the ceiling, a garishly made-up boy bedecked with a dead snake at his neck and a massive pillow at his belly alighted on deck. Everyone clapped, then whooped as a brawny actor with a Roman sword for a codpiece burst through a wall on the side of the stage and leapt mightily onto the boat to fondle the paced breasts of his scene partner. 
The paste breasts toppled out of the pregnant woman boy's bodice. The Romans scooped them up and juggled as the lady boy distractedly searched his bodice for his missing mammaries. The Roman tossed away the paste breasts and leapt from the boat, speaking gibberish and throwing fistfuls of paper coins from a sack between his legs. The queen laughed loudly, throwing her head back. Constance saw that Princess Cecilia, from her chair next to Elizabeth's, appeared amused, but between laughs her eyes narrowed. The Roman's gibberish became more outlandish as he flung his sword codpiece at the mermaids, who ducked. Another actor, this one a constable, ran in carrying a gigantic fake head with crazed green eyes, which he shoved onto the Roman, who careened about the stage with the constable chasing him, replacing his head again and again, each progressively bigger than the last. The Roman actor capsized and fell to the ground, cracking the final massive head wide open. Out of the ruins came a crowing, scratching, shitting red cockerel that flapped around the stage. The queen laughed louder, but Swedish whispering filled Constance's ears. The Roman actor ran off with the cockerel and came back with bright red horns and began pinching the arses of the mermaids to the agitation of the Swedish ladies. The scales fell from Constance's eyes. Of course, the Roman was the margrave and the boy with the snake, the Cleopatra-loving Cecilia. Elizabeth Tudor knew how to skewer, and she was enjoying the mask, laughing ostentatiously. Cecilia topped the Queen's convulsive hysteria for a few breaths, and then fainted, falling backwards and overturning her chair, seeming to land senseless into the lap of Sir Robert Dudley, who had been seated behind the Queen. Everything on the stage came to a standstill as the drama of the princess unfolded, limp in the arms of the gallant Dudley, as he trampled through the crowd with the Swedish lady swarmed around. The Queen and Lady Clinton rose. Lady Clinton spoke urgently into the Queen's ear. Constance wondered what she might be saying. Was she pressing the Queen to keep her temper, reassuring that she had won and Cecilia had lost, though the languidly stretching Vasa was in the embrace of the Queen's favourite? The princess put her arms around Dudley, her mouth softly opening and closing in wet-lipped gratitude. The queen began to swell. Lady Clinton's hands went up and stewards reached for the princess. Cecilia's back arched. Her head lulled against Sir Robert's chest. She fainted again, and he was forced to hold up her slipping limbs and supine torso. He flushed deeper as her chest rose and fell, pushing her bosom into his face. Tenuously, he unwrapped her into a waiting litter. Lady Clinton took up a goblet of water and splashed Cecilia's face, calling out words of revival. The princess screamed and spluttered. Damp-faced and fuming, she was carried out, surrounded by her Swedes. Soon after, the queen, her face inscrutable, paraded back to the privy chambers with her retinue. The stage began to be disassembled. The scenery brought down. The costumes became a pile. It was sad. The amusement had not been completed. Constance liked the big heads. Rutland needed one, or at least a cockerel to sit on his hat. Though the hall was in a flurry of cleaning, she saw Signor Guzman surrounded by his Spaniards, one of whom was aping Elizabeth's fury as another made kissing faces. Signor Guzman radiated goodwill. His own face had a benign set, and while she had seen him use a sharp tongue to amuse the queen, he did not join in the mischief around him. His eyes met Constance's. She instantly dropped her stare to the floor. She heard the pad of feet approaching. Constance was summoned to the bishop. 
Standing near this great man befuddled her, and she concentrated on his hands, long like a musician's, even and clean. She heard his voice. He was quietly praising her and saying a blessing. His hands called to her. She curtsied, and he ordered an escort to see her home. Constance understood. Yet as fearsome as the risk of going to the tower was, Constance felt the Countess of Lennox was even more so. Should she take a weapon with her to fend off the lady if she were again in a temper? Producing the correspondence from her aunt, still secreted away in her pocket, might keep the lady calm. Constance did not want to carry any more letters for anyone, ever. It was the most awful occupation. The journey to the tower was made on horseback this time because of the tide. Her escort was a talker. He whispered about the costumes, the queen, the fainting princess, about the frozen river. Constance hummed and nodded as she worried about her task. He handed her the burse, and she went into the great stone edifice alone. Constance could see a light at the top of the tower stairs. She slowed her step. Voices floated out. A lute played. Bewildered by such congenial sounds, Constance hesitated, and then concealed herself behind the half-open door. Through the slit, she spied the Countess of Lennox, bent over a paper, a joyful mood radiating from her dumpling face. I have composed the perfect words to remind Mary of my son's greatness, the Countess said, and then recited, Darnley's shaft flies. Scotland holds thee high, wise blood of an English king, the gold, mighty the hand of one who can in battle cry, of thistle and lion now equal bold, visage of Apollo thou show, demigod, a Hercules anew, Zeus reborn with wit of Cicero, my lord to thee all glorious homage due. My Darnley's worth is modestly expressed, yet it will serve, the Countess decided. Constance could not crouch against the door any longer. She spoke while curtsying low. Excuse me, madam, I have brought the bishop's gift. Shut the door behind you, the Countess snapped. Sneaking is your talent, I suppose. Constance did as she was told, handing the burst to Lady Knight. And the letter, the Countess asked. Constance stretched it out to Lady Knight but it was the countess who pulled it from her hand, shoving past her ladies into the other chamber. She called out, Lady Knight! And the lady swirled out, leaving Constance with Mistress Coulson, who began to pluck out a song on her lute. Madam, you carry such melody. I think few play as well as you. Constance did not entirely believe her own words, but what else could she say? Oh, when I was young, my fingers flew. Mistress Coulson finished her phrase, and looking up with a proud air, she said, my husband taught Queen Mary Tudor herself to play music, and a lovely thing she was. Such an honour to your family, Constance said. Mistress Coulson strummed again. That queen is often in my mind. Only eight years have passed since she died, poor soul. And look how all our situations have changed. Ah, so it goes. Mary Tudor was a person who knew right from wrong, yet it brought her no happiness. Mistress Coulson sang, Blame not my lute, my lute, alas, does not offend, though that perforce he must agree to sound such tunes as I intend, to sing them that heareth me. Oh, of all the poets, why it is my favourite, I love his songs. Perking up at an opportunity to speak of Wyatt, Constance ventured, I cannot bear to think of Sir Thomas cold and dead. Oh, nor I. 
he was vitality itself. We cried at his going, I will tell you. It was sudden. Even our Lennox showed her heart. But Wyatt's Lilibet was struck the hardest. Oh, madam, was that the wife the poet left? No, 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 his wife he hated. His last mistress. There were others before her, to be sure, but she was the one sharing his bed when he died. Lady Elizabeth Darrell, a good Catholic, and the mother of a fine son. Constance cast her net. How old might the son be? You look for a love who can describe you with a well-turned phrase. Wyatt's bastard is a fitting age for you, I believe. And when I last saw Francis, he was more than common handsome. Francis Wyatt? I have not heard his name, and you know, madam, that girls such as I always look for a sweet-tongued fellow. Oh, he was a man of his own, and did not call himself Wyatt, but stuck true to his mother and called himself Master Francis Darrell. Constance said, I think his mother was of rare plumage to capture such loyalty from her son and the poet. She must indeed be the lady of the great Sir Thomas's verse. Ah, no, no, she was not the lady of his verse. But who was that she? winked Mistress Colson to Constance's surprise. But go to the corner there, and you will see. Constance walked over and ran her fingers across the wall. It was covered with the scribbling of the many prisoners the chamber had held. Some were signed or stamped, but she knew instantly which drawing Lady Coulson spoke of. It was a falcon, carved into the wall. The pomander had been made in the shape of a falcon. Why had Constance not made the connection before? The badge of Anne Boleyn, the witch. She took Wyatt's heart. After her, his other mistresses had to settle for what was left, Mistress Coulson said. Was Anne Boleyn held here? Constance asked. My lady, the countess would never sojourn where that polluted vessel laid her head. The poet Wyatt carved that when he was here on her account. She put a spell on him, poor man. And even after they cut her head from her body, he was not free. Poor Mistress Darrell. The love she poured out never came back to her. That ghost shared the bed of her and Sir Thomas Wyatt. Yet he was loyal. Perhaps her sadness held him. Poets love a miserable lady, and if they are not miserable when they meet them, they will make them miserable. Is Mistress Darrell still alive? Constance asked hopefully. Indeed not. She was treated as well as could be expected by the young Sir Thomas after his father died. She was given land and a few trinkets. The bastard, Francis, was taken in by her family at Littlecote. Then, of course, the traitor, young Sir Thomas... Mistress Coulson left her words unfinished as she strummed. "'Dearest Constance,' cried the Countess, reappearing. "'My child, your aunt comes to visit. How happy you must be!' Her cracked mien revealing gaping teeth disturbed Constance. And the news! Why would Aunt Stoner come? Was it to hasten the marriage to Charles Paget? Constance did not want to hurry her pious future.' Everyone stood silent with the return of the Countess, who stood majestically and stroked the book of poetry that lay on the table. These pages are a history of my life. My life! That is why I bid them send it. Constance nodded. Here is the hand of my great friend, Lady Mad Shelton. She was once the lover of Henry. Do you see it? Constance stepped forward and nodded. You will never have such friends, girl. Constance shook her head. No, she would not. Such minds, such wit. I need their comfort here in this hell. In my husband and my son Darnley, they are so far away. The old apple crinkled her eyes at Constance. 
Oh, we'll be right now. Queen Elizabeth will rue the day she played so with me. Mistress Coulson gave Constance a look of pity. What did these ladies plan? wondered Constance. Why did they look at her so solicitously? Why was the Countess of Lennox strangely calmed? Mistress Coulson rose and guided Constance all the way down the stairs and kissed her cheek before turning back. Such behaviour made Constance suspicious. They had never worried for her before. She sidled herself out the door and peeked around the corner. No one. She was reassured to be left alone with no guide. It was all as it had been. Footsteps behind on the stairs knotted Constance's stomach, then relief again when it was only Mistress Coulson, who in a strange act extended a long fur to her. Constance took it doubtfully. The lady instructed that an escort was coming and proceeded to wait with her. Constance felt Cage standing side by side with this lady she dared not speak to. Finally, a Spaniard appeared to take charge. It was odd, very odd. Constance decided this kindness was her send-off. Yes, that was it. She was not to be summoned to the tower again. She was sure it must be so. Constance learns a lot of important things mm-hmm. in this chapter about the court, about her aunt, about Sir Thomas Wyatt's mistress. We could say that the new year is starting off with a bang for her, but... But, even though this chapter takes place on January 1st, in England in the 1560s, January 1st was not considered the beginning of a new year. In England, in this time, the beginning of a new year was celebrated on March 25th which was Lady Day, or the Feast of the Annunciation. So this marks the event in the Christian Bible when an angel announces to Mary that she's pregnant with Jesus. That's sort of the beginning of the Christian cycle with the inception, then Christmas, and then Easter. It kind of makes sense psychologically that they would think of that as the beginning of the year. And the spring, of course, is also associated with rebirth and new beginnings. So the date of March 25th, the equinox, as the celebration of the new year, may be a pre-Christian tradition in England that just got rolled over from a pagan holiday to a Christian one. But despite the spring and the equinox seeming like a good time to start the new year, even before the Christian era, most of Europe celebrated New Year on January 1st, and they had been doing so since the Roman Empire when the Julian calendar was introduced. And the Julian calendar was introduced by the man himself, Julius Caesar. So it's a solar calendar with 12 months, each made up of 28 to 31 days, working out to 365.25 days a year with a leap year of 366 days every four years. So Caesar made this calendar the official calendar of the Roman Empire, which England was a part of at that time. Right, and the English accepted it, but with a twist, because they kept celebrating the new year on March 25th. And I bet that really irritated the (laughs) Romans. (laughs) But in 1066, with the Norman conquest, January 1st was enforced by William the Conqueror's government. But then in 1155, in England, New Year was switched back to March 25th. So it's it's very confusing. And there was even more calendar kerfuffle when the Gregorian calendar was introduced in October 1582 by Pope Gregory. People who notice these things, and I am so confident that I would not have been one of them, saw that the Julian calendar was getting progressively out of whack with the equinoxes. 
So Pope Gregory called on his math-minded advisors and the Gregorian calendar was developed. So it reduced the average year from the 365.25 days of the Julian calendar to 365.2425 days of the Gregorian calendar. And to reflect this change in October 1582, 10 days were advanced. So that means that the day after October 4th, 1582, was October 15th, 1582. Can you imagine the conspiracy theories that arose out of that? I know, and the government took our days. It's a plot (laughs) to kill us early. (laughs) You poisoned me, and I fell asleep for 10 days. Yes, and even though most of Europe did it and had whatever angst they were going to have, because of hostility to Rome, the English during Elizabeth's reign and even long after, they did not adopt the Gregorian calendar, and they just continued with the Julian calendar (laughs) celebrating New Year's on March 25th. They kept their Julian calendar with a twist. Finally, after being out of whack with the rest of Europe, in 1752, the Calendar Act was passed, and the English adopted the Gregorian calendar, and officially after all these hundreds of years, well, thousands of years, you could say, moved their new year from March 25th to January 1st. And I'm sure there was a whole lot of craziness about that, too. And I'm sure there was resistance and people were like, I'm going to celebrate on Lady Day. And, you know, this change is hard. Yes. (laughs) And anything after the Calendar Act, legal documents and letters from the months of January, February and the beginning of March, they would all have the wrong date on them. So that is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, the wrong year in terms of what we think of as the year now. And it's something to keep in mind when you're looking at contemporary sources, because when writing about the Tudor period, historians usually change what would have been the Tudor year to align with the new year beginning on January 1st. So in other words, if the original date of an event in the Tudor period was February 3rd, 1565, historians generally change that date to February 3rd, 1566, or some give the date as 1565-66. And the first time I saw that, I found it incredibly confusing. I didn't stop and look it up. I was just like, oh, okay. You know, I was the the same. So for the 16th century people of England, Henry VIII died in 1546, not 1547. Right, and Elizabeth died in 1602, not 1603. So in this chapter of Time's Riddle, it's January 1st. Technically not Not New New Year. Year. But still, there's plenty of festivities. It's Christmas tide which are the 12 days of celebration between Christmas and the Festival of Epiphany. Right, and the party started on Christmas Day and went through Twelfth Night, and there were decorations, caroling, feasting, mistletoe, dancing, and all the social conventions of the time, which were so strictly enforced, as we've talked about a lot, they were turned on their head for this period of 12 days. Misrule was not just permitted, but encouraged. It was part of the tradition. Everything was forgiven during the 12 days of Christmas. Right, within reason. And some of the games permitted during this time of freedom, they're actually very funny to us now because I read that shuffleboard, shove halfpenny, skittles, and bowls, they were actually banned at other times of the year because they were associated, you know, not with cruise ships (laughs) as they are now, but with bad behavior. Oh, those shuffleboard hooligans. The violence at Skittle games. It must be controlled. (laughs) But at court and in the great houses, a lord of misrule 
was elected from the servants to lead the crazy. For example, in the early 1600s, the affluent Richard Evelyn put this up for all his household to read. It said, I give free leave to the said Owen Flood to command all and every person or persons whatsoever, as well as servants as others to be at his command, whensoever he shall sound his trumpet or music, and to do him good service, as though I were present myself. At their perils, I give full power and authority to his lordship to break up all the locks, bolts, bars, doors, and latches, and to fling up all doors out of hinges. Luckily, Owen Flood, this was a dream come true, but he probably had to have it read to him, because I don't know, maybe he didn't read, but I'm sure they proclaimed this (laughs) in the middle of all these festivities. And of course, the more puritanical types, as everybody celebrated, hated this tradition. And in the words of one of these disapproving fellows, he wrote, First, all the wild heads of the parish choose them a grand captain of all mischief, whom they ennoble with the title of my lord of misrule. This king anointed chooseth forth a number of lusty guts, like to himself. Then they have their hobby horses, dragons, and other antiques, together with their bawdy pipers and thundering drummers, to strike up the devil's dance withal. Then march these heathen company towards the church and churchyard, their pipers piping, their drummers thundering, their stumps dancing, their bells ringing, their handkerchiefs swinging about their heads like madmen, their hobby horses and other monsters skirmishing amongst the root. Because another words then is now when people are having fun there's always people who don't want them to have fun (laughs) i agree but i feel like that guy had a great time writing that (laughs) you think he was a lusty gut when he wrote it (laughs) the handkerchiefs swinging about their heads i like the devil's dance with all it's good (laughs) anyway the office holiday party is tame in comparison at christmas tide plays were performed at court and often they were topical and satirical and sometimes offensive you know when i first saw hamlet i thought Shakespeare sort of invented the court play as some device within his own play as a passive aggressive way to indict Claudio. But no, this tradition of doing masks and dumb shows was part of the whole court tradition for hundreds of years before Shakespeare. These interludes and masks gave the opportunity to comment on politics, new scientific discoveries, the secular elements of religions. Sometimes they did attack a person. And I guess we would consider it sort of like a roast when an important person is made fun of and they they have to bear it with good humor. Yes, they were topical masks or dumb shows and in times riddle. That's how we have Elizabeth attack Cecilia. So this play to insult Cecilia is actually documented in the English State Papers, which is an amazing resource available online. You can see the actual documents from the period. The letters are fantastic accounts of real events at Elizabeth's court. There's a letter to Lord Cecil from Cecilia's brother, King of Sweden, from April 1566. So after she returned to Sweden, Cecilia drew up a list of complaints of her treatment at the Queen's hands as a justification as to why she should not have to pay the massive debts she left behind her in London. The queen treated me badly. Why should I pay the butcher? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It doesn't make much sense. It makes rich, privileged princess sense. But one of the complaints was that, quote, being bidden to see a comedy played, there was brought in a man full of lewd, spiteful, and scornful words, which she said did represent her husband. So I guess Cecilia did not take this in this 
spirit of being roasted and having to bear it. We love the fact that Elizabeth contrived a play to insult Cecilia in real life. Yeah. She really contrived a play to insult Cecilia. And we decided that our Cecilia would do her utmost to upstage the queen with her attention-grabbing fainting fit. And I'm sure the real Cecilia made a scene. Yeah, she How was. How could she not? She was no doormat. <laughs> and I'm sure Elizabeth was like, oh, no, you took it all wrong. That was nothing to do with you, yeah. sugar. You know? I'm sure she was. <laughs> you misinterpreted. Yeah, you misinterpreted. But all this chaos of this play and, and all these festivities, they make a great cover for Constance's trip to the Tower, where on this New Year's Eve, which is not the new year, <laughs> she finds Lady Lennox also acting unlike her normal self because Lady Lennox is writing poetry and being friendly. I mean, this is, you know, misrule. It's a crazy night. Rutland is pissed off. Cecilia is fainting. The women in the tower are being solicitous. It is misrule, which I feel is a word we should use more often. I I agree. I like it. But Lady Lennox is also plotting something for her darling son, Lord Darnley, which is in keeping with her usual behavior. Yeah, that's that's sort of par for the course. But we're going to have to wait to find out about this particular plot, which is also based on real events, <laughs> and about Lady Elizabeth Darrell and her connection to our poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt. So you'll have to listen in next time for how those things are going to develop. Yes, tune in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Bye.